welcome to the latest episode of Rounds Rant, and today I'm joined by Tim Butcher. Tim Butcher is an English journalist, broadcaster, and author. He is the author of Blood River, Chasing the Devil, and The Trigger. Tim also spent time as a journalist between 1990 and 2009, working for the Daily Telegraph newspaper. So to begin this episode, I'd just like to ask you, how are you today, Tim? I'm very well. You speak to me in... Cape Town, South Africa, which is where I live and have lived for a number of years, and I feel very blessed to be here when um, Northern Europe is being uh, ravaged by the beast from the east, and you're dealing with terrible weather, so we're very smug down here. Mind you, of course, um, the other side of the coin is that Cape Town is currently very dry. You might have read about it, you might be aware that it's the first city in the world that's threatened with actually turning the mains water off with that low, the reservoirs are that low, so we're all a bit smelly here. We haven't had a shower for a few days. <laughs> Yeah, well, we're both suffering in our own ways. Um, my first question to you is about your early days on this planet, so to say, and what were your standout memories of your upbringing? British, Midlands, solid, average, 1970s and bleak. I say average because uh, I come from a middle-class background, accountant, dad, um, mum that used to, who used to work and then gave it up when... Uh, she had three kids back in the day you know without supermarkets without everyone owning a car it was a case of going to 16 different shops every day to buy your bread your vegetables your meat your whatever and mum did that um and the 70s i think in britain were a fairly bleak time and uh if you're from the midlands and i'm right from the middle of the the uk right slap in the middle as far from the sea as it's possible to get i don't know maybe you get a bit of an itch maybe you get a bit of a desire to travel so what's my first memory I guess my first memory is, you know, going outside, going for a walk, going over the horizon, finding a ditch to climb in or a tree to explore. Um, mm. So I guess that's my those are my dominant childhood memories. <laughs> getting down that getting down that muddy lane and going 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 for a wander. Nice. And you you studied where you went to college in Oxford, and I'm curious to know what did you study there? Was it uh, journalism? kind of s course or no was i did the, i did the um i did the wafflers degree politics <laughs> philosophy and economics they 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 sound quite grand together but really it's just um it's just an excuse to read contemporary books about how the world works and try and understand it not 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 saying that one ever did uh but it's it's strange you know at the time i looked around i was 18 19 20 in those years and i looked around and i just saw some pimply 18 and 19 and 20 year olds well, those people are now running Britain, as far as I could tell. David Cameron did uh, did this degree, PPE. Uh, the Miliband brothers both did PPE. Yvette Cooper did PPE. So these British politicians on the other side of the Irish Sea seem to be dominated by this this bunch of people. So mm. it, it, it's it's a it's a course offered by Oxford. It's a general degree, um, and it's a fun degree because it has a, a huge amount of freedom. And as I say, you get to uh, look at uh, the processes and the issues by which um, our world our world is is run. Not to say our world is understood, yeah. because I don't think many people do fully understand no. it, but that, um, you know, those are the kind of, that, that, that's the framing. So it's a, it's a fun degree. Um, I struggled a bit. I wasn't a standout brilliant student by any means, but I, there were areas that I loved, areas I did, didn't get on with so well. And uh, Oxford is a funny place because it is very, very entitled. Mm. People, a lot of people there think that you know they're owed things, um, and uh, that's a strange attitude to have when you're 19. No one owes me anything. Could have gone out and earn it, but um, some people did. Uh, so a funny place, and uh, I wasn't particularly comfortable there. But that was that was all a long time ago. Crumbs was in the last mm. century. 
So how did you end up eventually getting into the journalist uh, world with the Daily, Daily Telegraph? Was it, did you go into a more political-esque job following out of college or did you go straight into journalism? Well, I, going back, segueing back a little bit, I'd always wanted to look over the horizon, always loved travel, always liked the idea of better understanding things by, by comparing what we've got with what mm. others have to try and understand. And uh, I, I, I tried. To, I considered two careers actually, um, both with a kind of foreign in them: um, correspondent, being a journalist, but a foreign correspondent, and uh, the Foreign Office, being a diplomat. Uh, I did try that that route, but it, it choked me slightly because suddenly you are, you know, being in the Foreign Office. It's an exercise not in being an individual, but being in a committee mm. and accepting what the committee says, accepting what you know the chairman says and guides and, and all the rest, rather than you know going up by yourself. And I. That didn't work. Um, tried it, did the um, the exam, got a got a place, but didn't feel right. And the journalism thing was a lot uh, was a better fit um, and better. Uh, it it felt right. You're dealing with words. You're dealing with ideas. You're dealing with interesting people, odd people, quirky people, uh, misfits and strangers, and, and and doing all sorts of strange things. And also, you have got to be versatile. I did start in a local paper in Bromsgrove, and then. First story I wrote was was literally about you know something in the high street in a town called Bromsgrove, you know south and west of Birmingham, um, you know true local paper stuff, but very important to mm. local paper because you know if you get it wrong, the person who is being slighted, you know you're going to yeah. bump into him in the high street. He's out there, you know he's going to be in the bus queue, he's he's going to be in the pub, <laughs> he's there. Whereas if it's in a national newspaper, you're kind of one stage removed. But local paper is a great challenge um, because if you make a boo boo, you know someone you know comes and you know, stabs their finger in your chest and says, how dare you say that? What, mm. what did you mean by that? So yeah. I wasn't there long, um, but long enough. And I, I felt I learned and uh, I got a place at the Telegraph, the Daily Telegraph, back in the day, last century, when it was a newspaper that sold a million copies. Now it sells mm. 300 odd thousand. So it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fragment, a fraction of what it used to be. And things have changed in journalism. But back then they still had a budget for what were called foreign correspondents, which are people who, when international events happen, they would fund you, they would pay you to go to those difficult places at difficult times and to better understand them. You know, it's the oldest premise in the book, you know, if you're going to make a judgment about something in a foreign land, you've got to have some sort of informed opinion. And foreign correspondents, though they're not mm. perfect by any means, they are, as the old cliche goes, they write the first draft of history. It's not going to be the final received one, but they actually have a first, they sketch it out. And um, I was I was very lucky to to see some some epic events, and also at the same time, you know, Daily Telegraph. I did all sorts of things, you know, car crashes on the M4 in the fog, and one of my highlights was <laughs> meeting some friends in a bar one night, and they said, oh, "How was it going?" And I sort of blushed a bit and sort of changed the subject a bit too <laughs> obviously. And a friend said, "What are you talking about?" What did you say? He grabbed the paper and he opened it, page three of the Daily Telegraph. Tim Butcher had done a big report on the most expensive <laughs> teddy bear ever sold at auction. So I became teddy bear correspondent amongst my <laughs> drinking buddies for, for many a while. So journalism has a nice grounding effect. You can be talking to a president one day and auctioning a teddy bear the next. So um, if you are getting the airs and graces, you can be have that bubble burst quite quickly. What are some of the noticeable changes in journalism from when you say started writing for the Telegraph to what it is like today? Well, I think there's only one word, really. Uh, there's one massive, colossal change, and that is the thing mm. called the internet uh, the internet changes everything newspapers worked on a very st 
clear and strict model and the newspapers newspaper owners and newspaper infrastructure had an advantage and the advantage was i can distribute things to you i can get that news to you so a newspaper whether it was the daily mail daily express or an irish newspaper american newspaper newspaper whatever people obsess slightly on the content the journalism that went into it but really what it, their unique selling point was that they could actually get the thing to the reader from you know from central london with the trains you could deliver a newspaper to, from cornwall to fort william from wales to to the wash um and in any person at seven o'clock in the morning is reading the same thing so you've got to control that distribution so if you get it into the newspaper it reaches people if it does get to the newspaper it doesn't it's silent it's glossed and that all changes in 94 95 96 because suddenly everyone's got the internet from cornwall to fort william from the wash to wales you don't need to wait for the newspaper to arrive by truck by railway by ladder you could get it another way and that's been the colossal change so the newspapers that had that control over the news that was distributed they could edit choose select prioritize you know have their political values went into the choice of news of news articles all of those sorts of things that has gone because the internet has passed it you don't have that unique selling point of newspapers which is the control of distribution mm. has gone and with it has, has eroded so many things so you don't have the, the control you don't have the uh, the income because people are not paying for the newspaper anymore therefore that stream of income doesn't comes uh, hemorrhages away and if you don't have income coming to the newspaper they can't pay for a correspondent to go and find things out so the impact of the internet is that there's no longer a budget to go and send professional journalists out why do you not need professional journalists because you've got other sources you've got unchecked pr machines you've got citizen journalists everyone with a cell phone becomes a journalist well that's great marvelous that could that, that contributes but that's not you know they're not mm. the same as a professional writer or professional um a journalist and uh you know we can mock and scoff and you're quite right to journalists are not saints by any means there's plenty of of uh, rogues and cads amongst them we all know that for, for truth but the other truth is this that you mustn't judge all journalists by the awful behavior of a sun reporter who might do this or a terrible headline writer screeching headline from the daily mail don't taint us all with that single brush as i know a lot of very very hard working people i'm i'm, I'm, I'm decent people i also know a lot of people who made literally the ultimate sacrifice who gave their lives you know who were killed in the balkans in africa elsewhere in the middle east who gave their lives because they cared to try and find stuff out so I'm, I, I, I get a bit, you know, I, I get a bit jaded yeah. with the people who say, oh, journalists, you're all a bunch of this, you're a bunch of that. Yeah, sure, there's some bad ones amongst the tribe. But the, what's changed now is that that quality, that filter, which used to be there because there was a grumpy line of editors and, you know, sub-editors with cigarettes hanging from their <laughs> bottom lips and curmudgeonly old grumps who cared about the devil in the detail and all of that sort of thing. You know, in the Daily Telegraph back in the day, they used to have this incredibly strong rule. You only ever mentioned the pound sterling. You then put in brackets the foreign currency. You never did it the other way around. Okay, so that's the rule. So when someone quipped in Hollywood, oh, Liz Taylor, she's worth a million dollars. The Daily Telegraph headline was Liz Taylor, she's worth 323,000 pounds, 176 and 26p, open brackets, a million dollars. That's how kind of curmudgeonly these mm. people were. They're obsessed with detail. Um, 
And I think it's great because, you know, you know more, more, all credit to them, these guys were absolute genius at staying calm when the Berlin Wall was coming down, when political turmoil was happening, when a bomb was going off. I've seen people deal with bomb situations. I've seen people deal with fatalities. You know, a journalist, you know, one of their friends getting killed and staying calm and reporting it calmly and accurately and thoroughly. And it's really mm. a very, very impressive thing to see, um, that, sort of, that sort of calmness. It's gone now because you don't have the resources. The resources are gone because the internet means that no one will pay the cover price for the paper, but more importantly, that advertising revenue. All those big, lavish advertisers who come and, you know, I don't know, Rover Motor Car Company would, or Land Rover would say, take slabs of advertising out in a, a broadsheet newspaper. And if you're reaching a million, if you've got a million sales, you've got a huge premium for your advertising revenue. Mm. If you're down to 300,000 sales, it it's hemorrhaging away. So your income's down, and if your income's down, you can't pay for journalists. And it's a self-supporting thing, because if you then pay peanuts, you get monkeys. Yeah, exactly. So do you, with what you said, do you think gatekeeping and the role of editors have been completely got rid of with social media, or do you still think there is a, a gatekeeper there making sure that the right information is given out to the public, or do we actually do live in a society where fake news is pretty much the only news we read well i think i think one one follows from the other that the filters the editor levels the people the, the eyes who are on stories checking things of which there used to be several have been pared back to a bare minimum i think there's still some one or two but there yeah. used to be 12 or 15 now they've gone so what does that mean that means you've got one or two and into that environment then fake news can drip because the internet, of course, is not driven by accuracy. It's driven by extremes. It's driven by shock. It's driven by the outlier stories on the edge of the bell curve, not the normality, not, the, not, not, not what's real in the middle of the bell curve, because they're boring. We need clickbait. You need the woman with the triple D, triple D, triple D breasts. You need the, uh, the uh, academic who's got the 15 degrees who's been caught doing something odd, you know, something odd, you've got to have the sportsman doing these things. It's got, it is the, you know, clickbait is an extraordinary thing. Because, sadly, you know, clickbait works because people are interested. They, are, they do want to click on the picture of the freak. You know, what is it? Um, someone, you know, someone joked that the internet was all about um, uh, freaks, Armageddon and porn. You know, and if you can get the three together in one story, you'll you'll break the internet. Well, doesn't Kim Kardashian do that? You know, when her backside her backside spills out of another, you know, she deliberately photographs herself spilling out of a very tight leotard, mm. leaning over with her backside and making some reference yeah. to family values in America. I mean, that really is the the holy trinity of the internet coming together. Um, so the internet's a very powerful thing for me. It's powerful because it's like having a library. I can look over the shoulder of others and reach others, reach the expertise and skills of, of, of anyone, any time. But when it comes to the news industry, it's been very, very dangerous. And we have a situation where, you know, a US president is elected, and it can be feasibly argued that the marginal calls, the marginal difference that made him elected, was uh, people who voted because they believed a narrative which was deliberately, mm. falsely, Planted, whether it was the stories that you know that Hillary Clinton, there were website stories on funny websites that said 
Hillary Clinton ran a child sex ring in yeah. a pizza house in Chevy Chase in Virginia. You know, it's there, there it is. And when the New York Times then then has to report, Hillary Clinton denied writing, running a blah, 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 blah. The very, because they have to do it in that rather sort of strange way, that almost odd way of, of, of the media. We don't actually have the integrity to say, well, that's just such absolute mm. outlandish bullshit. We ignore it. They say, oh, we've got to actually yeah. give it, you know, give it the fair benefit of the doubt. We've got to go and speak to the Clinton camp about that, get them to get them to issue a denial. And then by issuing a denial, you legitimize the yeah. bull. And around that grain of bullshit enamels a few layers, and then the layers get more and more enameled until guess what? You know, the internet's bestrewn with stories like this, half-baked, half-cooked, and influencing people. You know, there are voters who genuinely but went to the polls thinking that, you know, Barack Obama wasn't yeah. born in the United States of America. You know, Barack Obama is a Muslim. You know, Trump insinuated it. Trump hinted at it. Trump stood on platforms with people who bellowed it out. And by doing that, you know, there are people leaning on the bars in Southside Chicago, in Peora, in wherever, people who will vote, who have a vote, legitimate contributors to the electoral cycle, who will say, well, actually, you know, that Obama, he should never have been president because he wasn't even yeah. born here, not even one of us. And that's when it gets mm. really dangerous. So to to move on to some of your pieces of work, your book, Blood River, was written after you became an African foreign con correspondent uh, for the Daily Telegraph. And the book follows your mission to recreate the expedition of H.M. Stanley. And what were some of the biggest challenges you faced by recreating that expedition? And also to follow on from that, how tough of a book was that to write? I guess yeah. that we'll split that into two. I mean, I don't need to tell any Irish person of a certain age, a little bit older than you perhaps, what mm. Congo means. You know, Congo has this unique sense. You know, when the Irish troops went there in the 1960s, they found themselves mired in a situation which was part real and part fantasy, but always dark and uh, not very comic. Um, as you know, many Irish soldiers lost their lives in horrible incidents, the Pond de Niemba, the Niemba Bridge, and the siege mm. of Jadaville recently turned into a film amongst others. Um, so it's not just our, for Ireland that Congo occupies this space, for me as well, for many, because if I think of Africa, and I think of Africa's problems, and let's be, be honest, I know Africa well, and there are many problems here, and they do recur. You know, It's not as if, oh, he's just a grumpy old white racist supremacist being rude about Africa. Yeah. No, I'm not. I'm being a realist. I've lived through Ebola coming and going into West Africa. I've lived through Mobutu coming and going, being replaced by a dictator even worse. I've lived to, yeah, we just had Robert Mugabe yeah. clinging onto power into his name. It's a, it is a different continent. And yet at the heart of all of the stories in the Congo, I used to find, sorry, in Africa, I used to find the Congo played a role. It physically is a space in the middle of the continent. It sits astride the equator. It's right there. It's massive. It's a big lump of land. It's named for a river, the River Congo. And it has an extraordinary vice-like grip over history, over the history of Africa. It influences today. It influences the past. And I'm, you can be sure as, sure as anything, it's going to influence the future. So I, as a correspondent, trying to understand this troublesome continent, I found myself you know, being drawn back almost magnetically to one place, the place that was so bad in the 60s for, 
for, for the Irish soldiers and the UN peacekeeping mission for in the 70s when um, you know Rumble in the Jungle was sharing a very distorted view of life in the Congo and Mobutu was being so greedy into the 80s when we start getting the trouble that would come mm. into the 1990s with the genocide because that's connected the Rwanda genocide is connected. so it all it all it all it all kind of amalgamates and then I found this extraordinary thing which I didn't appreciate that as you quite rightly say, Henry Morton Stanley was the first outsider to chart the river. And he did so in one of those massive, important Victorian moments of exploration. You know, he'd already done in a previous trip, the Dr. Livingston, I presume, rift. There had been other travellers. There'd been Mungo Park on the Niger River. You'd had guys at Burton and Speak exploring the upper Nile. But those guys, they were important and they all played a role without a stout. But the absolute key, the moment, the thing when the key turned in the lock was this journey by Stanley. And the reason it turned in the lock because, was because having found this river and charted it, suddenly, oh, the white man gets interested in the middle of Africa. Oh, we'll take a bit of land there. There's a river there. We could use that for a, uh, to, to support a, a colony. Oh, let's grab some land in the middle. And the Belgian king made his move. Prior to that, the white man had never been interested in Africa, the, the hinterland, the bit in the middle, the bit in the, the meat of it. It was only interested in the edge, those ports, Cape Town where I am now, Mombasa, Freetown, Libreville, places where you'd be able to resupply ships or mm. do trade. But it never went inside. So Stanley changes everything. He starts the scramble for Africa. And... Uh, there I was reading about this and I, I found something it was like scales falling from my eyes. I'd never heard of it. Stanley did the strip. He didn't, he's changes history. It's a huge thing, but he didn't do it as a scientist or a geographer or as a representative of the British government or as an army officer or as in anything. Richie, he did it as a grubby journalist. He was a journalist sent on this trip. And who sent him? The same newspaper that sent me to Africa, the Daily Telegraph. So he was a Daily Telegraph hack, you know, fiddling his expenses and writing his stories, you know, worrying about where the next bit of money would come from when he went on this trip, 1874 mm. to 1877. Extraordinary to think you could go for three years, going back to our internet thing, you know, no. internet age. No journalist could go offline for three years. He did. And he came back with the story of the late 19th century. It changes everything. So I became obsessed with Stanley, this obscure little uh, Welshman came from Wales originally, an uh, illegitimate child had been dumped in a workhouse. He'd rebranded himself. His original name was John Rowlands, a good Welsh name. And he rebrands himself Henry Morton Stanley. And he's a repackaged guy. He literally reinvents himself, which is quite modern, I thought, even though we're in the 19th century, and changes Africa. So I wanted to do this. The problem was, when I started out, even in the 21st century, doing this trip, planning it 2000, 2001, 2002, three and four, I was told it's impossible to do it. The country is so riven by war, riven by problems of disease, and riven by terrible logistics. You simply, there are no roads left. There are no boats. There are no railways. There's nothing. It's all mm. gone to hell in a handbasket. I couldn't believe that. How could that possibly be? 21st century, a place with no roads, a place with no rail. Yeah. I mean, come on. 21st the internet's been around for 10 years. I can book a ticket. I can buy a ticket off Everest. I can go to the Sahara. I dive in the deepest seas in the world. I can go to up the highest mountains in the Andes. Well, I, mean, I can do anything. Sure, I can go to the Congo. Well, <laughs> you try. You try buying a ticket to go to the Congo. You try buying, finding anyone who, you know, it's, it's, it's just not there. 
So for my biggest problem was logistics. I was, I was okay to deal with the war. I, I could manage that. I've done wars before. I've done cr cross front lines before. I know how to be patient and find the right rebel group and mm. do it at three o'clock in the morning when everyone's drunk. And, you know, yeah, you know, a little bit of trade craft I knew. But that wasn't going to cut it. A little bit of, you know, military foreign correspondent trade craft was not going to cut the Congo because the scale is so enormous. I was going to go from London to Moscow, that sort of distance. 1,600 miles, 2,800 yeah, kilometers. Not an easy task. And there are no roads. <laughs> no roads. Nothing. 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 So anyway, that became a challenge, and I became obsessed with it. Cut a long story short, I got a break. A break came, came with a guy who said, look, we're prepared to you know, take some little motorbikes down where the old roads used to be. They're tiny little motorbikes. We can pick them up and carry them over obstacles, and we'll set off with you. And, we, and, and that was the breaker. That was the deal breaker for me. And uh, we went 700 kilometers through the bush, tiny motorbikes, taking every fluid ounce of petrol with us, every bit of water, every bit of food. Couldn't trust, it couldn't rely on anything. No trade, no shops, mm. no can of sardines, no warm can of Coca-Cola, no nothing. And uh, I was very blessed because I, I fell in with incredible guides. And um, the journey worked only because of the kindness of strangers. And there, uh, the book is a full tribute, tribute to that. Now, you then asked how difficult, how hard was it mm. to write a book? Well, I'd never <laughs> written a book. I'd written lots of journalism. I'd written teddy bear auctions. I'd written weather stories. I'd written all sorts of things. But I'd never written a book. But I naively thought, well, what is a book? It's 100,000 words. Well, that's just 100 big stories, mm. isn't it? I mean, I do a 1,000-word piece in an afternoon and two hours. Some days I'll do three or four of those. What's wrong with that? That's, that's 100 days' work. I, won't be a problem. Big problem. Big difference. And what is the difference with a book? A book is not a piece of journalism. A piece of journalism has that instant. Yeah. It's the froth on the coffee. It's the froth on the cappuccino. It's the thing that's right there, and then it collapses. And tomorrow's, you know, today's newspaper, yesterday's, uh, tomorrow, what am I saying? Today's newspaper is tomorrow's fish and chip paper. The old cliche. It goes. A book has to have life. It has to, have, it has to be sustainable. And what sustains it? A story worth telling and a story that lasts, a story that hangs in the air. Joseph Conrad had a nice, nice phrase about writing. He said, the best writing is like the best music. After the music has gone, the refrain hangs in the air and stays in your ear. The best writing is the same. And what gives it that power to last? A narrative arc, a beginning, a middle, an end, a direction, a flow. And I had done the journey. I felt I had a book there, but, you know, many, many people say the words, I'm going to write a book. Mm. Very, very few of them fulfill this, that sentence. Was there ever a time throughout your travels in the Congo, was there any close calls with gangs or was there ever a time where you thought, or was there ever a time you feared for your life covering that or was it smooth sailing? Tell me a time when my hair was parted by the bullet. I... I uh, yeah, there were several times, several times when, you know, dangerous people, unaccountable people are pulling weapons on you or threatening you. Or there was a, a, a gang of, of rebel soldiers in the east, mm. my, my, I mean, totally unaccountable people. And I'm in the middle of nowhere. There's no way anyone is going to hold stop these people if they choose to do something bad. Another time I'm accused of being a spy. Another time, you know, I was sick, sick, sicker than I had, uh, ever have been. And uh, I didn't understand, you know, I had no idea how do I get to medicine, how do I get to a doctor? There were no doctors for hundreds of miles. So I guess it comes in, in waves. Um, and 
for me, it's a bit like tinnitus, yeah. that ringing in your ears, you know, that sound you get when you've been to a concert, you know, the, the morning after when your ears are absolutely you know, just pinging, pinging, pinging. You know something's wrong. The, the ringing is there, but it doesn't actually pick up to a deafening sound until you think about it, until you concentrate on it, if that makes any sense. And so the fear and the anxiety and the terror in the Congo was like that, a constant ringing in the ears at the back. From the day I arrived on that particular trip to pretty much the day I left, like two days before I left, someone stole my passport and tried to sell it back to me. And he was wow. meant to be a friend of mine. He's a friend of mine <laughs> auctioning my passport back. He pulled a scam and said, you know, you've got to have a yellow fever certificate. Well, I had a yellow fever certificate. It's in my passport. So he took, he took both and he didn't return the yellow fever certificate. And he auctioned back, the, you know, and it, he just wanted to be a pain. He wanted to leverage money. And he was a friend. Yeah, um, tough love. So it was like a ring, oh, tough love. It was like a ringing in the ears. But, you know, as I say, in, um, you know, for, for, for people in Ireland of a certain age, isn't the phrase, you know, eat your greens or you'll be, you'll be got by the yeah. balubas. And the balubas were the uh, were the ba the, the luba people the baluba meaning the, the luba people were these people who were fighting so fiercely down in Katanga where the Irish soldiers were were sent. So you know, weird, weirdly, you know, nothing's changed in thirty, forty, fifty, sixty years. So to move on to your your latest major piece of work, which is the trigger hunting the assassin who brought the world uh, to war. It's a book about the teenage assassin who triggered the first world war, and what made you write about that period in subject? Was it similar enough to um, Blood River in relation to you being very intrigued and interested in the topic? Or did someone come to you and say, listen, you should write about this? Or how did the whole book and the idea come about? No, very very much the former. No one, I've never had someone come, no third party has said, come to me and said, I know, have this as an idea. I guess what it is, is, is this. Uh, I'm, I'm ignorant, but curious. I want... I'm, I'm, I'm challenged by things. The Congo, Central Africa, Africa's problems. I don't understand. I really don't. And I'm baffled and I'm blown away and I know they're important. It's important. And I desperately want to understand. And so these, that journey was to try to better understand. The First World War, 2014, the anniversary is coming up. It still sits. It squats like, a, like an old, like Philip Larkin's toad on his shoulder. It's the toad on my shoulder, the conscience. I don't understand. The First World War... Slaughter in the trenches, you know the iconography, we know the mud, we know the blood, we know the sacrifice. No one could possibly be brought up and not be aware of that framing. But the issue is, how do we end up there with European soldier against European soldier, supposedly civilised nation against civilised nation, toiling in the mud, scrapping through the earth? There's a great line in All Quiet on the Western Front by Maria von Remark, he says, when the shells are coming in, and the shells do come in, if you've ever been shelled, it's just, it is it is not Hollywood. It is mm. horror, like you can't imagine. A piece of shrapnel the size of your fingernail can decapitate you, can disembowel you. And a 120-millimeter cannon uh, t- t- mortar shell makes a lot of pieces of shrapnel the size of your fingernail. When that hell is happening, you hurl yourself to the ground, says Remark, and Mother Nature soil the earth is your only sanctuary, and you bury yourself in it. How could we have a 20th century um, empire, or empires, plural, the Kaiser's empire, the British empire, where the soldiers are scrabbling in the mud? And you know, mm. as a British person, you know, no church I ever went into didn't have a memorial outside, no school service I went to didn't have some plaque on the wall, here are the old boys of the school, old girls of the school who were killed, whatever. 
it just sits there and I still don't understand where it came from, how it started, how it was triggered, how you end up with, you know, Queen Victoria's grandchildren had a fight. The grandchildren, they were first cousins, the Kaiser, the Tsar and the King. The British King, the German Kaiser and the Russian Tsar were the grandchildren of the same doughty old woman, Queen Victoria. And they end up slaughtering each other. Yeah. Not a million, not five million, but 20, 25, 15 million. What a huge, you know, you don't, so you don't, no one needs to, you don't, everyone's familiar with the fact, those facts. But what I'm ignorant about is how we get that. And so my curiosity takes me on these journeys. And that's the similarity with the Blood, Blood, Blood River. It's, it's an acknowledgement of ignorance and a driving curiosity that there are some journeys and some historical conundra that are worth working at, worth, worth gnawing at. So how did, what, how did the First World War start? We all know from your history books that there was this bloke on a street corner in Sarajevo and he shot the Archduke. Archduke Franz Ferdinand, the heir apparent to the Habsburg dynasty, was mm. shot by a Bosnian Serb student. And if you were very, very attentive in class, you might even remember his name, Gavrilo Princip. But who was he? And why does he knock our world off its normal orbit? How does he destroy the old imperial order? Because sure as anything, he shoots that gun and he doesn't intend it, but the unintention, unintended consequences of his actions are an end to the world yeah. order. You know, I don't need to tell Irish people how important the First World War was to hastening the arrival of home rule. You know, and that British imperial will by the last thousand years, all of that. That would that that was all changed. The Russian Empire goes, the Ottoman Empire goes, the German Empire, the Kaiser, all of it is changed by a kid with a gun. And so that is what intrigues me. And so I go back to this space where he comes from, this Balkan space, and I explore. And there's a little bit of a segue here because, as you mentioned, I was a foreign correspondent. And back in the 1990s, I was a foreign correspondent in Bosnia. And I came across a funny thing in the city of Sarajevo when it was being shelled and when it was having such a terrible time at the hands of the Serbs in the 90s. I came across a small building and that building had a cross on it. So it was a Christian building, but it had been hit by a shell because a lot of the buildings had been shelled in, the, in those days in Sarajevo. And it turned out to be the tomb of Gavrilo Princip. Wow. So the guy who starts the First World War, his little tomb is in Sarajevo. It's been hit by a shell. And what do I find inside? People are using it, Richie, as wow. a bathroom. The local citizens of the of the this guy, this mm. historic figure, this epic individual, he's been trivialized by events to such an extent they are crapping on his tomb. And so that just blew me away. How, uh, what, uh, hold on, how does this kid, he's the most famous Bosnian ever. Why do Bosnians hate him? And then you start unraveling the layers, the cliche. You just start taking the layers off the onion. And who was he? Yes, he was a Bosnian, but he's, not, he's hated by these Bosnians because of this reason. Blah, blah, blah. And then you see how history filters things. And the journey I made was a wonderful physical journey. I, I went from this guy's birthplace right across the lands and ended up where he was educated in Belgrade and then ultimately on the street corner in Sarajevo. So it was a beautiful physical European journey. And believe you me, after my other African journeys, it was quite fun to go to places where there were houses with glasses yeah. in the window and uh, you know shops that functioned. It was, all, it was all rather brilliant and rather different. But the point was, 
the journey wasn't just a physical one. It was a journey through history. And it allows you to better understand how a teenager, he was just 19, he was a school leaver, wasn't even at university, just an angry teenager with a gun could knock our world off its orbit. And that's what made it such a wonderful journey. I, I did enjoy that. And I enjoyed the, the archival exploration, the journey through the archives, finding his school reports. No other historians ever touched his school reports. No one ever bothered. They all looked in the wrong place. But I found the place in Sarajevo with a bit of luck and a bit of graft. And I find the guy's school reports. And you see in his school reports. And I'm sure what your <laughs> Best not mention that, to be honest. <laughs> Richie, but mine. <laughs> Exactly. But but they uh, but you saw this guy going off the rails and he's a bit like a an angry teenager today, a jihadist sitting in yeah. you know, an internet chat room, getting angry yeah. and getting on a bus and going to France and getting on a train and getting a flight to Turkey and then crossing the border into Syria. It's that sort of sense of anger. And you see that in black and white. A an, an A student. Um, suddenly falling off the bandwagon and getting very um, radicalized. And that's where this comes from. And that's why history teaches us uh, such an important thing because, you know, the, the young guys who are jihadists, who are taking horrific actions and falling in with extremist ideology and propaganda, they're not dissimilar to Gavrila Princip 100 years ago. Mm. And we need to learn from the lessons of 100 years ago to try and stop the the horrors of today. Mm. And last question for you. And last question for is you haven't you haven't wrote an, haven't a piece or a book in you know three or four years at this stage or a bit longer. Do you see yourself do you see yourself uh, actively writing another book in the future or do you think you're pretty much you're done? <laughs> I hope not. Uh, I am working on a couple of book projects at the moment and uh, one is involved involving okay. a jihadist actually is involving a young man who um who uh, is taken hostage by jihadists in africa in mali and is um goes on a hell of a journey and i see him as a as an important symbol for our modern world where these influences and you know since 9 11 every time america has come down hard in afghanistan pakistan iraq tunisia libya wherever Gabon recently. Everywhere it goes, it fails to put the fire out. Mm. The fire just starts somewhere else. So that started 9-11, and uh, we're now, what, 16, 17 years into George yeah. Bush's war on terror, and that war is not won. A lot of people are dying. And then there's another another book project, which is more academic, which is to do with the League of Nations. And uh, I, you're quite right. I haven't written a book for, for three years now, three or four years, and uh, I'm, I'm tying that into the League of Nations anniversary, which is 2020. 1920. So I've got a couple of years to to go on that, and that is how the world was was our modern world was created by a bunch of strange men with moustaches in a room in Paris, and it ties in with Irish nationalism, all nationalisms, and how noble the nationalist cause can be, but how that noble cause can easily be dragged off by extremists, and we see that today with Trumpian America populism. And the yeah. Brexit issue on the other side of the RSC from you, where we have little little Englanders saying, Yabu sucks to Brussels, you're not one of us. And they don't see the absurdity of their argument. That if they if they say Yabu sucks to them, then some other people are going to say Yabu sucks to them and say, to, to themselves. And they're going to, they're not English enough, you're not Cornish enough, you're not Yorkshire enough, you're not London enough, you're not something enough. 
and suddenly the whole thing is reduced ad absurdum to the absurd. And um, if the 20th century taught us nothing, or only one thing, yeah. it just taught us that nationalism is highly toxic. And so I'm trying to deal with that in a, in, in a okay. book form. So lastly, what I do with each um, podcast is I just do a quick fire round to finish it off. So first thing that pops into the brain, okay. I encourage you to say, and um, if it's too incriminating, we can get rid of it. So don't, uh, don't hold back. So uh, first question, what is your favorite film of all time? Local hero. Uh, tea or coffee? Coffee. Uh, your favorite sports person of all time? Daley Thompson. Uh, your favorite hobby? Reading. Um, your favorite music band? The B-52s. If you could pick a guest to come on Actually, next. Actually, no, I'm going to change oh. that. I'm going to change that. I'm going to change that to the undertones. Okay. Same if question, could, the undertones. If you could pick a guest to come on next on the podcast, who would it be? He's dead. Patrick O'Brien. <laughs> okay. Uh, your favorite book ever? <laughs> and it can't be one of your own. Geek Love, Catherine Dunn. Okay, and last but not least, describe yourself in three words. Curious, ignorant, flatulent. Okay, well that wraps it up, Tim. Uh, I want to thank you for coming on and uh, taking your time out of your day uh, as I am swamped and housebound for the day and trapped for the foreseeable future. But I just want to thank you for coming on and I really enjoy getting the insights of uh, your work and I wish you all the best with those two upcoming projects and I hope they go well. Thanks, Richard. Thank you to all your listeners. It was great fun. I enjoyed it. No worries. Thanks, Tim. Cheers.